it's so good to be worshiping with you tonight. And uh, I especially just want to welcome those of you that are watching online. Um, you know, the last couple of weeks, more and more people are participating with us live online, not just watching some sort of taped thing. And uh, it's just been really fun. So um, I also, also want to say this. I want to welcome those of you who are new to B4. Um, I, I've heard a lot of stories just in the last probably two weeks of people who are just brand new, a part of B4 Church. And I'm just so grateful that, that you found us during this season, and, uh, and I hope that uh, God's blessing you through this, and I actually think it's a really good time to join us. Uh, I think this is a good time to be a part of B4, whether you've been here a week or whether you've been here 40 years, amen? I think it's a really good thing. Um, we, we have been clarifying our vision for ourselves as a church uh, over the last several months as a staff behind the scenes. We've been talking about what it is that God's called us to do specifically, um, and then through that process, we created just a, a book for, for you to read and understand who we are and what we're doing. And, uh, and so if we had your address, if we knew where you lived, if we even knew like something closely remotely to an address, we tried to send those to you. If you didn't get one of those, that's available for download on our website or just contact us and we will mail you one so you get one. But the reason that we're doing that is so that we have an understanding of who God's calling us to be as a church. And in addition to that book that went out, we've been doing this new series that's clarifying our vision that is called All Things New. And, and, and what we're attempting to do is capture a snapshot of the heart of God for his church. What is the snapshot of who God is and what he's doing through his church and in specifically our church? And we want to do that by looking closely at the life of an individual known as Abram or later in his life, Abraham. We're going to talk about that tonight. Um, and I think it's interesting and also really important for us to understand that when we look at the life of Abraham and we look at it from this lens, it's critical for us to realize that Abraham is not just some random biblical character who appears in this random cast of biblical characters that are a part of some sort of ancient morality play. That's not who Abraham is. Abraham is a central character in the story of God, and in fact, he's the first to truly reveal the heart of God towards humanity and, and for us to be able to understand who God is and have that translated into our language. What is God's plan for humanity? We begin to see that through the person of Abraham. In fact, there, there's a Latin term that students of the Bible for the last hundred years or so have been using to describe what God is doing in the world, and it's called the Missio Dei. The Missio Dei is this, this idea that God is a God of mission. God is a God who has a plan. In fact, there's even an understanding that God sends people as a part, that God sends his son as a part of his mission, of his plan. I think when we talk about this, I find people are oftentimes surprised to discover that the Bible is not just some random collection of, of historical vignettes that are sort of woven together in, in some sort of vague way. Um, it's, it's interesting for us to all recognize this, it's important for us to recognize this, that the larger narrative that is being revealed through the Bible is this thing called the mission of God. There is this larger narrative that runs through all of the stories, that weaves them together, that connects them into this thing called the Missio Dei. And next week, I'm going to really emphasize this, and we're going to talk about it. But this week, what I want to do is I want to connect your story to this narrative. All of these stories, all of these narratives, these things specifically that are being drawn from Abraham's life, how does our life impact this, or how is our life impacted by this? Um, as I mentioned in the, in the first week of this series, if you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you, you essentially find yourself closing the 11th chapter with a question, and it's this. God, what are you going to do with this mess? What are you going to do with this mess of a world that seems to be sitting in front of us? And then chapter 12 opens with the introduction of Abram and an indication that God is answering the question through him. 
So we have this question, and now we read this. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can open it up to that. I want to read this with you. By the way, for the last several weeks, I've been saying, if you want to grab a Bible in the pew in front of you. And then uh, last week, Mark Nicholas told me, he said, you know, we took those out like four months ago because of COVID. And I was like, I had no idea. So um, hopefully you brought your Bible with you tonight because you learned last week if you were here, there are no Bibles in the pews. But Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the introduction of Abraham is, is coinciding with this introduction of God's plan for humanity, for people. And I want you to notice something about this. He wants Abram to leave his country, his family, and his land. We talked about that last week. We talked about the need for us to leave someplace in our past to go someplace in our future. That's part of what God's doing. He wants to make him a great nation, and he wants to give him a new name. And why is he doing all of this? So it's really important for us to see. There's a word that gets used five times in three sentences in Genesis chapter 12 at the very beginning. And it's the word bless or blessing. He tells Abram that he's going to be blessed. But the reason he's going to be blessed is so that he can himself be a blessing. He will be a conduit of God's blessing to the nations. I'm going to bless you. And then through you, he says, I am going to bless all of the families of the earth. That is an expansive vision. It's not just, I'm going to bless your family, and your family's going to be special, and your family's going to be blessed. He says, no, no, I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to bless you because I want everybody else to be blessed through you. And this is really good news. This really is. Um, it, it's, it's great news for us, but it's news that should cause us to ask a second question, especially in our culture. And that is this. What is God's idea of blessing? This is great that God's going to bless Abram, but God, what is your idea of blessing? For example, we have different ideas of different words. Um, you take the word fun, for example, and you ask one person what fun is, and you ask another person what fun is, and they will have two very different definitions. Uh, I am a kind of person, um, I'll, this may sound strange, um, but I enjoy activities that push me to my physical limits. Um, in fact, one of the questions I've been asked a lot during COVID are, what are all the scars on your arms? And uh, if you've noticed watching online, I, I think about a thousand different people have said, what happens to you between Sundays? Because you always have like something else. And the reality is, I just play really hard. And uh, whether it's climbing mountains or riding my bike long distances or going on trail runs, um, there, is, there is a point that I like to get where I, I start to suffer and then I push through that suffering. And I love it when somebody says, do you want to go do this really crazy thing and it's going to involve some suffering? Um, that, that kind of stuff I enjoy. And so there have been a lot of moments when I've been asked by somebody, they say, well, tell me about that. Tell me about that mountain climb or about that bike ride. And I'll start by saying, well, that was really fun. And I, you know how many times I've had somebody say to me, you and I have very defini different definitions of fun, right? We don't see fun the same way. And the same is true for the word blessing, See, I know what our culture says being blessed looks like. In fact, I even know what Christians in our culture oftentimes refer to as being blessed. We could probably rattle off a number of different things and saying a blessed life in our culture looks like all of these different things. And by the way, many of those things would be very good things. They would be good things. But the question is, are those things the same things that God is talking about when he talks about a blessing? 
When God says, I'm going to bless you, Abram, and then I'm going to bless the nations through you, is the kind of blessing God is referring to, the same kind of blessing we think of in our culture today. Now, if, if God has a plan to bless humanity, I think it's fairly important for us to understand what it is he defines as blessing. And then I think we should consider how does he actually accomplish that? How does that become known to us? How do we enter into that and experience that? Which requires for us to go back a little further into Genesis. Believe it or not, we're going to move backwards and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. Because we have to see where this story starts to really understand where it's going in the end. So back in Genesis chapter 1 and also Genesis chapter 3, there is a dichotomy that is being presented to us at the outset of the Bible. The first book that we look at. Toward the end of Genesis chapter 1, we read this. Verse 26 says... Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now there's two things that I want you to catch here. First, it's a very big one and a very important one. It's that we are made in the image of God. And again, I'm going to give you more Latin. You never knew you'd learn so much Latin in your life as you would tonight. But that is called the Imago Dei. We have the Missio Dei, the mission of God, then we have the Imago Dei, the image of God. And what Genesis chapter 1 says is that you and I, male and female, are made in the image of God. We are image bearers. That has all sorts of implications on our world right now. And, and I'm not going to get into all of that because that's a whole other series of sermons, I think. But what does it look like to deal with other image bearers, to talk to other image bearers, right? We are made in the image of God. But I want you to see a second thing. We're made in the image of God. And then secondly, it says, then he blessed them. He made them in his image, and then he blessed them. And then the next several verses go on to describe a life lived under this blessing. So what does it look like when God blesses you? Well, it says that that blessing was manifested in several ways, in a relationship with God. It was manifest in a relationship with each other that looked a particular way. It was manifest in a relationship with the creation, with animals, with birds, with plants. There was a way that people were now living in their lives, the way they were moving through their days, the way they were interacting with each other, the way they were living with God, that was a manifestation of that blessing. Things were right in this environment. Things were whole in this environment. Things were the way they were supposed to be in this environment. In fact, um, the ancient Hebrews, they have a word that they have used throughout their history to describe life in this moment of Genesis chapter 1. And it's the Hebrew word shalom. And it means peace. But it means more than peace. It means more than just a lack of volatility. It means wholeness on every level. It means flourishing on every level. It means that everything is the way it's intended to be. Wholeness. And it's everything that we see in Genesis chapter 1. So it's really important that when you look at the Bible that you understand that the story starts here. It starts in Genesis chapter 1. But this is not where the story ends. Not even close to this. In fact... Um, if this was the story of humanity, if the story of humanity just sort of started with Genesis chapter 1, you said, hey guys, this is where we all began, and it was really beautiful and wonderful, and then that was it, Genesis chapter 1, we would have a dilemma on our hands. We would look at our lives, 
We would look at our world. We'd turn on the TV today. And we would stop, start looking at our relationship with each other. We would look at our relationship with God. We would look at our own emotions, our own mental health. We would look at our own families. We would look at all of these things, and we would be left asking, what happened? I mean, Genesis chapter 1 is this beautiful thing with humanity and God and the creation and each other. If, you, if that's all you knew, and then you woke up today, just this morning, and you turned on the news, you would scratch your head and say, what happened? But we have Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 actually helps us understand what happens, right? It doesn't take rocket science to understand that we live in a broken world, right? You don't have to be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon or anything along those lines to see human brokenness. Amen? Right? And that's where Genesis 3 comes in. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, beautiful picture. God and humanity, creation, each other, wonderful. Then we read this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. You wonder where we got, how we got where we are today. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What happens next is the great deception, isn't it? Um, it, it probably hard-pressed. I know maybe some of you have never heard the story of Adam and Eve, and, um, but my guess is that I'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that hasn't known this story. And we know how this story ends. Humanity, the story of Genesis chapter 3 is that humanity chooses not to trust God. Humanity chooses to trust themselves, their own instincts. And there are consequences when human beings choose to trust themselves and not trust God in our life, but specifically here. And so just a few verses later, after they've made that choice to not listen to God, we read this in verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day which they had done before with God, right? They knew that sound. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This has such rich symbolism for us. The man and the woman, they hide from God. Now, they're not really hiding from God, are they? But they're hiding from God because the relationship has been severed. And, and next there's this conversation that unfolds where God says, why did you do what you did? And Adam says, it was her fault. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then what does she say? It was the serpent's fault. Right? They just start shifting the blame. It's not my fault. It's their fault. It's not my fault. It's it, they just start moving the blame down. Right? But it doesn't matter whose fault it is. Because shalom has been broken. Shalom has been shattered. That's the point of the whole thing. There was wholeness, and now there's brokenness. And so a few verses later, in verse 23, we read this. It says, So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Another way you might say this is, the blessing had been removed. The blessing that manifested itself in unity with God, in unity with each other, in, in connection with, with the created universe, that unity, all of those things, that blessing that God had played out over them, that was now broken. It has been lost. That's the point. By the way, the way you read your Bible, the way you understand the Bible, the way you even understand your life in the Bible will depend on where you see the story of the Bible starting. 
This is kind of a side note, but it's good for us to understand. If the story for you and what God is doing in the world starts in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of man, and, and that's the center of your attention. Oh, everybody's broken, everybody's sinful. Well, then the rest of the Bible and Jesus and the church today, then the job of all of that stuff is to remove the sin, right? If your story starts in Genesis 3, then everything is going to be focused on, well, then how do we fix the broken? How do we remove the sin? It's all about sin management, right? But if you start your story in chapter 1, which, by the way, that's actually where the Bible starts, not in chapter 3, it starts in chapter 1 for a reason, then the rest of the Bible, then the the church and Jesus, it's about the restoration of shalom. And there's a radical difference between those two things. There's a radical difference between you and I managing sin and trying to eliminate brokenness and restoring shalom and the wholeness and the blessing of God that he's put over people. We're participating in the renewal of all things now. Are you with me in this? So let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. That means that when we get to Genesis 12, we see God through Abraham returning the blessing. I want to restore. I want to renew. I just don't want cleaned up better versions of yourselves. I want there to be wholeness on every level. And I'm doing this through this individual named Abram. Now, now, here's something I really need everybody to understand. Abraham is not just a delivery system. Okay? He's not just the UPS driver bringing God's blessing to your doorstep. He also models the methodology through which God brings his blessing. I need you to catch this. I need you to hold on to this for a moment so that you really understand the Bible and you understand Abraham well. What we see in Abraham isn't simply God's desire or God's delivery system, but we see what it looks like when his blessing begins to pour out through the life of an individual. What happens when somebody like you or me or like him begin to receive that blessing and begin to lean into the restoration and the renewal that God has for us. We see a model, not just a delivery system, but we see it being lived out. This is how it happens, which brings us to the B's that we've been talking about, the four B's of B4. And and tonight we're going to talk about the third one, which is just very simple. It is the idea of be. Can you be being who we've been called to be? Um, We've been talking about the first two. We talked in the first week about this idea of beholding God, which we see Abraham doing. Abraham beholds God. He comes face to face with the the one true God, and he is the first human being that we have an example of being introduced to this God. And it, it just completely changes the trajectory of his life. And what we have said is that that's what we're called to do as a church, that we are here so that people can behold Jesus in the same way that John the Baptist pointed people's eyes to Jesus When he was walking along the River Jordan, we are here to point people to behold the living God. And then last week we talked about this idea of belonging, that through Abraham, God is creating a new community, a new nation, a new people to be a part of. And what we do is we create opportunities for people to belong to and belong in this new humanity that God is forming, this new nation that God is shaping. And then tonight, I want to talk about this idea of be. And it's rooted in what we see in Genesis chapter 1, but we really begin to see it play out in Genesis 17. So now I want you to flip a little deeper into the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 17, um, there's something beautiful and inspiring that's in, in these particular verses. And I, wanna, I just want to process this with you. In Genesis chapter 17, uh, God changes Abram and Sarai's names. He changes their names. Read with me. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to him and said, 
I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants and after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And then a few verses later, if you read down in the text, you get to verse 15 and it says, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her, and I will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Do you see what God is doing here? We have Abram and Sarai. And Abram means exalted father. Sarai means my princess. Those aren't bad names. Uh, Those are pretty good names. Um, But then God gives them new names. And these new names are a revelation of how God not only sees them, but how God sees humanity. A revelation of how God sees you right now as you listen to this. There's a revelation in this. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me again. I want to show you something. He says, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. And then listen to what he says. For I have made you a father of many nations. And then he says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Do you notice that there's a dynamic that's being created by God here? Look look at what he says. You have been made to be something. You have been made this. And then he says, and I'm going to make you into that something. You see that simultaneously God is looking at Abram and he's saying, I have made this, present tense, this is how I see you. And then immediately following his, he says, I will make, and there is this future tense aspect of this. This is who I see you as, and by the way, this is what I'm turning you into. And they happen to both be the same thing. And so as a result of just the way God speaks this over him, there are movement dynamics that are being created in the life of Abraham, right? In fact, I I think this resolves some tension that a lot of people feel at times. I I think sometimes people say, well, okay, wait a second. If God loves me and God accepts me just as I am, if Jesus If his forgiveness covers me, well, then what is there left to do, right? I'm forgiven. Easy peasy, right? Just I kind of move through my days and know that God is love, and that's all, right? And that's a question, by the way, that arises from a person who starts their biblical story in Genesis chapter 3. If it's just about the removal of sin, and then Jesus offers forgiveness, well, then obviously what do I do from that point? I'm forgiven. I'm just going to go ahead and live my life, right? It's just about the elimination of sin and forgiveness, and Jesus did that, and so we're good. But if your story starts in Genesis chapter 1, then it's about so much more, isn't it? It's about the restoration of shalom. And if it's about that, well, then it has implications for the rest of our lives. That means that right now, God sees you for who you are. And when he sees you for who you are, do you know what he sees? He sees a Genesis chapter 1 version of you. He sees a Genesis 1 version of you. He he sees you walking in the cool of the garden. He sees you relating to your brothers and sisters. He sees you living in the creation a particular way. And then simultaneously, he sees a Genesis chapter 3 version 
of you who was walking in brokenness. He says, listen, I see you, I made you, you are this, and I will make you this. That's what he's saying here. That means that right now God sees you for who you are and who you can be. He sees Genesis 1 and he sees Genesis 3. Notice, notice that with Abraham, he sees him as a father of many nations, but he's not that yet, is he? I love this. I think this is so beautiful. There is a gap between where Abraham is today and where God sees him in the days ahead. And God seems to be excited about taking him to that place. God sets his sights on the person who Abraham or Abram will become, and that is this man Abraham, right? I, I see you, Abram, but I actually see you as Abraham. And God is committed to getting him there. Abraham will learn to be who he was created to be. There is this movement here. There is this journey here. Abram and Sarai are becoming Abraham and Sarah, and the same is true for us. Even whoever you walked in this room, or when you turned the TV on tonight, whatever, whatever you thought your name was, God has another name for you, and he's taking you in that direction. That's what this is showing us. God created you and I to be someone. You are made in the Imago Dei, but the image of God, the Imago Dei, needs to be remade by us, in us, by the Spirit of God, so that we can be who God created us to be. So one question arises out of this, one final question that I think we have to, have to answer, and that is, well, then how do you get there? How do you and I become the people that we were created to be? And I'm glad you asked that question, because I, I heard it, all of you asking it. There are typically two answers that we answer that question with in our culture today. Because, by the way, um, the idea of us experiencing transformation, us being something more than we are right here, um, that, that question exists in all humanity because all humanity has this nagging sense that they're not who they're supposed to be. That's everywhere in our culture, right? Um, but, but let me just say there's two pathways that we typically get presented to us along these lines. One is the answer or the pathway of culture. The other is the answer or the pathway of religion. And, and culture says this. The first one, culture says that if you want to be all that you can be, join the army. Just kidding. It says if you want to be all that you can be, then you need freedom. Right? If you have this nagging sense inside of you that you aren't being who God created you to be, then you're not being true to yourself, and there's some sort of limiting factor around you. There's something in your life. There's some structure. There's some relationship. There's some sort of expectation that is on you that's not allowing you to be who God created you to be. And so our cultural response to this nagging thing inside of us that says, I'm not the person I'm supposed to be, is in our culture we say, well, then you need more freedom. I mean, we need to... We need to <laughs> We could probably just say legalize it, right? Do whatever you want to do, right? Let's make, let's, or maybe we should just say decriminalize it. Is it too soon to make those jokes, right? But that's the answer of our culture, right? If you're not who you want to be, well, then just give yourself more freedom and more and more freedom and more and more freedom. And the more you and I are allowed to just be who we want to be or be true to ourselves, then our culture says, well, then you're going to finally have those feelings of satisfaction. That's the, that's the, the message our culture tells us. And that's what we see happening right now, by the way. And the intensity of the fight for individual rights is just a reflection of how much we believe that unchecked personal freedom is the answer for our lives. Now, historically, there's another option, and that's the option that's presented by religion. 
religion is rooted in moralism and legalism. And so the religious answer is to say something very different than culture. Religion says, well, if you don't feel, feel like you're being who you're supposed to be, if you don't feel like you're living up to your full potential, how God created you, well, then it's because you're bad. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that really what it boils down to? Because you're messed up. And you have consequences because you messed up. That's what religion says. The answer in religion is, stop it. That's the answer of religion. You don't feel like you're being who you're supposed to be? Well, you're doing bad stuff. Knock it off, right? And so you white-knuckle it. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you say, okay, well, then I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to work harder. But does that ever actually deliver you? Does it ever actually get you anywhere? Now, before I move to the third option, which I believe is the true option, before I move to that, let me say that in some cases, churches have watered themselves down and have simply become faith-based versions of the cultural model, right? It looks like religion, but it's rooted in this whole cultural freedom message, right? Or at least it's influenced by it. That is out there as well. That is not who we are. There is a third and distinct option, and I want to make this really clear. And interestingly enough, Abraham's Abraham's entire life points in this direction. The third way is the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel. And maybe you ask, well, okay, well, how does the gospel transform in a way that's unique from what you just said? I mean, doesn't the gospel bring freedom? Doesn't the gospel also tell me that there's things broken in me? Yes, those things are true. But let me just clarify it this way. A few weeks back, um, if you stayed tuned to the end of the service, it was one of our recorded services, I closed with something that I just want to say again because it's directly connected to this idea of you and I being who we were created to be. I said this. I said, the world says you are good. Religion says you're bad, but the gospel says you are loved. And that makes all the difference in the world. And it makes a difference because in the gospel, love and acceptance and and forgiveness become the operational tools for transformation. In the gospel, it isn't about me getting everything I want, and it also isn't about guilt and shame. What motivates me to be transformed, which encourages me to be the person I'm created to be, is the love and the acceptance and the forgiveness of God. That's what the gospel gives us. So rather than just simply condoning brokenness and and, and leaving us to to fend for ourselves the way that, that culture does, and rather than beating us up and leaving us bloody and broken on the side of the road like religion does, the gospel takes us back to a place where we see a God who loves us and creates us and said, I made you like this, and I'm going to let you become like this. That's what the gospel does. The gospel allows us to live a particular way in the world, to be who he created us to be. And now what motivates us is this love, is this acceptance, is this forgiveness. When you and I receive forgiveness, when we genuinely receive forgiveness, that's what provides freedom, doesn't it? Isn't that true freedom? When I experience, experience acceptance, that's what produces trust. When you accept me, that's when I trust you, right? When I encounter his love, now I want to love him back. Those are the motivational methods of the gospel. And when we lean into those things, we take another step down the road of being who God's created us to be. So I want to close by connecting the dots of the past few weeks, and I want to bring some clarity to this thing we call the church. Um, There's this diagram that that, uh, we've put together that I want to show right now that just simply expresses this, that we behold, we see God breaking into reality and revealing himself in the life of Abraham. 
We see him creating a community that we belong to. And then there is this sense of us becoming, that there is a transformational dynamic. God, I see you for who you are. And I'm now a part of this new thing that you're creating. And I see my life being transformed by this, which then leads to what we're going to talk about next week. And that is this idea that then we go beyond. And through our going beyond, we allow the presence of God to again enter into people's circumstances. And this movement, this cycle begins to take place. We're transformed because we are belonging to a community of people who are beholding the living God through the gospel. Amen? So tonight, um, we're going to close by taking communion together. And uh, I'm going to invite the band back out right now. And then um, I'm going to ask that you grab what, um, what I'm referring to as COVID communion. So when you came in tonight, you had... Um, you received communion that has been sterile packaged and it's very unfamiliar and foreign. And I'm just so you know, I'm doing my best to try to picture Jesus in the upper room with cellophane on a little plastic cup. Um, But I'm going to invite you to take this right now and there's a little sheet on the top of it that you can pull off that reveals a wafer. And you can know that no one here has touched that wafer. It is COVID-free. might be the only COVID-free thing in your life right now. And then this cup, also the foil comes off the top. And I just want to encourage you to open that. And if you can, I'm struggling with mine. And as weird as this is, and as foreign and strange as it is, Jesus asked us to do this. It didn't matter if we were going to do it with a loaf of bread and a goblet or trays that got passed around the room or a station up front. It doesn't matter if it's gluten-free or gluten-heavy. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus said, I want you to do this. He was sitting with his disciples the night before, or the night that he was crucified, the night he was betrayed at his crucifixion. He's sitting with his disciples in this moment, and they're breaking bread together. And this is where Jesus says, you know this word covenant that God used with Abraham? I'm making a new covenant, and I'm making it with you. God is being revealed to you and me. And I'm creating a new people that you can belong to. And you are going to become who I have created you to become. And you are going to go beyond the walls that you ever imagined you would go beyond. And he says, so what I want you to do is I want you to take the bread and I want you to take the cup and I want you to remember me. Now, in light of everything we talked about tonight, I think we need to understand why this is so important is that this separates what the church is from culture's version of transformation and religion's version of transformation. If if we just talked about needing to change, we would have so many different directions to run in. But tonight what we have talked about is that the gospel, the reality that we were so loved that somebody died for us, we, we talk about that and that's what changes our hearts. We're so broken that someone has to die and so loved that somebody does. That's what this is about. And the gospel changes us because of that. When you and I gaze on the reality of what Jesus has done for us, it transforms our hearts. And so Jesus says, I want you to keep doing this because I never want you to forget that I'm not just telling you you're bad and I'm not just telling you to go be free and do what you want. He's telling you, I want, you're loved and I see who you can become by leaning into So tonight we're going to join with all of those who the centuries have 
remember Jesus in this way. And on tonight, we're going to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus. Let's eat together. Jesus said, that's my body broken for you. He said, this is the blood of my new covenant poured out for you. Let's drink together. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and then we're going to close in worship and then I'll come back up and offer the benediction. But let's just pray together. Jesus, there is hope and there is life in you. And I I believe with all of my heart that the reason you asked us to never stop doing this, to always remember you, is that you never wanted us to get lost in the messages of culture and you never wanted us to get wrapped up in the bounds, the, the chains of religion. You wanted us to live in the freedom of the gospel. And so tonight, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your body broken for us, your blood poured out for us, the new covenant, the new deal, that we have in you, a new humanity to be a part of, a new nation, a new name. Lord, let your grace transform us in this place. In your name, amen. Amen. Let's worship together.
You know, um, this this afternoon I was sitting in my office and I had a, just a strange moment where I just saw everything really clearly, probably more clearly than I could say it tonight, but I just saw everything really clearly. I just saw who God is and his love for us and I could see the life of Abraham and just how it points to the person of Jesus and I had this moment where I thought, how can you not say yes? to Jesus. And, and I know we got all kinds of reasons for being skeptics, and I know there might be some of you in the room and some of you watching that there's parts of you that you're still asking questions about who Jesus is, but there's a part of me that says, when you see who Jesus is, when you see what God wants to do with us, when you see that by us being available to him, he creates in us this person he created us to be originally, how do you not just say, Jesus, I say yes to you. I want to lean into the wholeness and the life that you have for me. So tonight, as, as, as we close, I want to offer this benediction. May you be men and women who just see Jesus clearly. May you see the love of God, and may his love and acceptance and forgiveness be the motivating factor in your heart to become everything that Jesus created you to become in his name. Amen. Amen. You guys, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. As you're, as you're hanging out tonight, maybe talking to a friend or two, know that there are some of our elders that are going to be in the room. They're available for you to pray with them. They've got some orange lanyards on. If you want to hang in your section or just grab one of them, feel free to pray with them. Remember, as you depart tonight, there's colors on the doors, and there's also an opportunity for, give, for you to give as you leave. You can also give online and continue to mail in if you want to do that. And I just, again, want to say thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being with us tonight. Uh, it is good for us to be together. Amen. 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 Love you guys so much. We'll see you guys really soon. See you later.